Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. But let's look at... Um... At verse number one, beginning in verse number one, we're going to read through verse number 19 here. It's a lengthy text, lengthy portion of scripture. So as I read the word of the Lord, this is what he says to us. Paul is writing again to the, the, the people in Rome and he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church in Chintre. So you would welcome her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and you would assist her in whatever matter she may require of your help. For indeed, she has been a benefactor of many and also of me. Give my greetings to Priscilla and to Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life. Not only do I thank them, but so do all the Gentile churches. Greet also the church that meets in their home. <clears throat> Greet my dear friend Epinatus. Who is, this first, uh, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews and fellow prisoners. They are noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles, and they were also in Christ before me. Greet Ampelatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ. And greet my dear friend Stasius. Greet Apelles, who is a co-worker in Christ. And my, uh, my dear friend, my dear friend uh, Stasius. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those who belong to the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphenea and Trephosa, who have worked hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, and Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers and sisters who are with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus, his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. You can tell that this was written before COVID, right? Uh, all the churches of Christ send you greetings. Now, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who, divi who <clears throat> create divisions and obstacles that are contrary to the teaching that you have learned. Avoid them because such people do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ. But they serve their own appetites. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting and smooth talk with flattering words. But the report of your obedience has reached everyone. Therefore I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and yet innocent about what is evil. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your holy word. Even though sometimes it looks just like a roster or there's just names or there's just, just events that are listed, Father. And we sometimes wonder, what is this here for? Father, we find that there is so much to understand right here just in this passage about uh, the forerunners of our faith, about brothers and sisters that we uh, will never cross paths with here on earth, but we will celebrate you together in heaven with. And so I pray this morning you would speak to, your, to us from your word. I pray that you would convict us. I pray that you would encourage us as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So a long list right here, right? Before we get into the message this morning, as we're kicking off, I want to ask, just by show of hands, how many of you like movies? You, you like movies, okay? All right, just about everybody does. Some of you are bookworms. You would rather read, read the book than watch the movie or something like that. Um, on the count of three, let me just, let me just ask you this, okay? Uh, what is your all-time favorite movie? One, two, three, go. 
Okay, like three people. All right, you like movies, but you don't have a favorite one, right? Now, let's try this again. On the, on the count of three, maybe I'll give you a little bit more time to think, all right? Uh, just shout out your favorite, the title of your favorite movie. One, two, three, go. All right, mine too. I love them, all right? This is how you please everybody in, in, in leadership, okay? Um, if you're watching this morning and virtually, if you, just comment there below, like, what is your favorite movie? What's your favorite title, okay? Now, on the count of three, let's do the same thing, but this time, name your favorite actor, okay? One, two, three. Okay then, all right, all right. Okay, a couple. Uh, my favorite actor of all time, my wife knows this very clearly, and it is Ryan Reynolds. Yes, Ryan Reynolds. He makes me very insecure about myself, but anyway. Um, but anyway, okay, what's your favorite actress? One, two, three. Okay, three of you are playing this game. The rest of you are just like looking like, I came to church this morning, you know, this is not dignified enough. All right, okay, there's a point to this. Okay, now on the count of three, who's your favorite production assistant in the movies? All right. What about your what about your favorite grip coordinator? Hmm? You're going. What in the world is he speaking in tongues now? No. What What in the world is a grip coordinator? Well, a grip coordinator is someone who is vital to the movie. Production assistants are vital to the movie making process as well. But a grip coordinator grips. It is an actual position that you can get in the film industry. You know how when you're watching a movie and you see these sweeping shots. You know, especially in the rom coms when they have that that final kiss in the movie where everything just works out. You know, and they finally get together, even though all the forces are against them to get together, like in all the Hallmark movies and they have that sweeping music and then the camera just kind of backs away like this and they're the only ones left in the world you know that is what a grip does a grip sits down with the script long before the actors do and they start to say and they read the script and they begin to visualize how they can make this beautiful on screen because if a beautiful script is it's great to have a beautiful script but if you don't have good grips People are not going to enjoy the movie. You've got to know this, especially for action-adventure movies where you've got car chases and stuff. Grips are working overtime on that because they've got to have cameras in the car and cameras outside the car and cameras in helicopters and cameras in drones and all kinds of different things. If it were not for the grips, the movie wouldn't be nearly as gripping. <laughs> you get that? That's why they call them grips, all right? But nobody, everybody has their favorite actresses. Everybody has their favorite actors. Everybody has their favorite supporting cast. But nobody has a favorite production assistant. Nobody has a favorite grip coordinator. Why is that? Because none of us stick around to watch the credits at the end, do we? What are we doing during the credits? Unless it's a Marvel movie and you know that somewhere in the credits there's going to be another scene. What do we do at the credits? We get our popcorn, we get what's left of our Coke or whatever, and we start to throw it away and we get out so that we can beat the traffic out. Except for there's always that one random person or random couple that sits there through the whole credits. And I'm like, these people are really into the grip coordinators, all right? They really want to know who everybody... Because, you know, through the credits, you get the actors and then you start getting production assistant and all the makeup artists and all that type of stuff. Here's what I'm trying to get at this morning. The credits tell us why the movie was so good. And it's not always just the actors and the actresses. The supporting cast, the supporting people make the movie what it is as well. As we get to the end of Romans, we get to this passage that we're looking at this morning. It's almost like Paul has given us the closing credits of the gospel. At least the closing credits of the gospel in the book of Rome, right? The, 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 it's like, it reads like a who's who of who was attending the, the church in Rome, like a membership list, right? Paul mentions no less than 29 people by name in the passage that we read. Next Sunday, there's going to be even more that are mentioned as well. All right. So if Romans were a movie, you could say that chapter 16 is like the closing credits. Typically, the conclusion of a letter or the conclusion of a sermon, it signifies one thing. 
I'm just about ready to wrap this up. That's what a conclusion is there for, right? Actually, I see this every Sunday. When I, when I kind of signal back to the, to the sound booth or I say in closing or as we move towards the time of invitation, everybody does the exact same thing. They close their Bibles, they put their notebook away, they get their purses situated. Guys, not you all, but you know, we, you know what I'm saying. And we begin to kind of like just, we, we mentally and everything, we shift into a new, uh, a new phase. Because the conclusion says this, I'm just about finished. And so Paul is moving towards the end of the letter here to the Romans and he's kind of like, as I'm closing out... I want to commend a few people to you. You'll see that Paul uses the same style in every letter that he writes in the New Testament. He was able to write 75% of the New Testament, most of them being epistles or letters, and he closes the letters out in the same way. He commends someone to them. Usually it's the messenger that's carrying that letter to the church that it's supposed to go to. And then he commends some other people that he knows in the church. It's almost like he's giving shout outs to some people in the church to kind of give some credibility to what he's saying. And this is what Paul is doing here. But this list of commendations in this conclusion is three to five times longer than most of the other conclusion lists. It's significant. And it gives us a little bit of significance too. And, and we look at some of these people in here and we see some of these names and we're like, I don't recognize these people. Some of them we do, others we don't. This is all we know about them, that Paul mentions them in Scripture. That's all we know about them other than that. History tells us a little bit about some of these other people. So I thought this morning, before I, I want to point out just a couple of things that we learned from each one of them. But I want to kind of like get to know some of these, some of these people. They're what you would call the supporting cast. They're the grip coordinators and the production assistants of the gospel or of what God was doing there at the church at Rome. Everybody's heard of Paul. Everybody's heard of Timothy. Lot, some people have heard of Phoebe and things like that, but they don't know a whole lot about Philologus, right? You're like, I thought that was a, a character on Sesame Street or something. That's Snuffleupagus, okay? But we have all of these people that are listed here, and God doesn't waste text. God doesn't throw text in there just to be throwaway stuff, right? It's there. And it's there for a reason. We learned this when we went through the genealogies um, at Christmas time a couple of years ago, learning about the genealogies that are listed there, right? But this is the church version of kind of the end credits of the movie, all right? So each man, each woman, each boy, each girl who has ever received Jesus, Savior, Jesus as Savior is part of a great supporting cast of the gospel. And church, this is what I want to say. These folks were named in the church at Rome, but our names are listed in the church at Graceway in the church in Lexington. We have just as much and just as a significant of a role as these folks that are being named as members of the church in Rome. They were part of a significant movement of the gospel. We stand here today at 2022 as part of a significant move of the gospel in Lexington, Kentucky. And because of missions efforts and because of prayer and because of all the partnerships that we have, not just in Lexington, but it's, it, it kind of moves out around the whole world. So just because our name may not show up in God's word, it does show up. If you're a child of God, it does show up in the Lamb's book of life in heaven, which makes us significant as supporting cast members of the gospel. See, we don't make the gospel great, but the gospel makes us great. The gospel takes us from not being much of anything, we're living for much of anything, to giving us a holy and significant purpose. None of these people would have mattered much in history if it were not for the fact that they were members at this church at Rome and Paul commended them on their gospel labor. There were people whose lives had been totally transformed by the gospel of Christ and there are people that were serving the Lord together in their own way 
with all their heart. So as we look at these end credits this morning, I want us to consider how the gospel has a great effect on us as well. So, and it gives us this long list of ancient names, doesn't it? These are names that we don't see very often today, probably because they're so, they're, they're so, they're so goofy or strange, especially to us, right? Like Rufus, all right? I don't know many Rufuses out here today, or I don't have any friends named Rufus. I think I knew a dog named Rufus once, but that's about it. I don't know. If you know a Rufus, I'm not making fun of him. It's just not a common name, right? I don't know anyone named Philologus. Anybody know a Philologus? I mean, maybe you have a friend named Phil. You might want to ask if it's short for Philologus. I understand that, there, that times are different than ancient times, but can you ever imagine at any time in history, what would compel a parent to look down in, their, in the nursery, in the crib, and say, boy, that's a philologus if I've ever seen one. You know, what, what causes a person to do that, right? Uh, only name better than that is Ampelatus and Asyncretus, right? Which sound more like serious medical conditions than they do like names of, of good people to go to church with, right? Then there's Epinatus. I guess you want him around in case you ever have a risk of going into anaphylactic shock, right? Because of EpiPen. Uh, you'll get that later on. Then there's Narcissus. Um, this one means about the same thing it, did, it does to us when we think about narcissism. It's almost like naming your kid egomaniac. All right, that's, some of you may not want to name them. <laughs> you may want to change their name to that when they become teenagers, but you know, whatever. Next week, we'll see Sosipater and Tertius and Gaius. Oh my, that'll be good as well, right? These names are not necessarily household names. They're not names that we would normally think about, right? But there is a significance in all of these names, and the first thing that we have to understand about this, these lists, these all point to a diversity that we see. And this is the first thing we have to understand about the gospel is that the gospel is a great equalizer. The gospel is the great equalizer. All of these names are different. They sound funny to us in our modern American culture. But these names also sounded funny to them too, unless they were from the same kind of culture. These names represent a global collection of people there at the church in Rome. Some of those names were Jewish names, which we're going to see in just a moment. Some of those names were actually names from the Greek world. Some of those were names from the Roman world or the Gentile world. The Bible even says that Epinetus was actually saved, was the first convert in Asia. So we see all of these names. It shows a great diversity within the body of Christ. A cultural diversity and a racial diversity that was there in the body of Christ. Because Rome was a melting pot kind of city. is the most significant city in the world. And so the church at Rome reflected that multiculturalism that was taking place in the church at Rome. And is the church in, in America... I think we have that same responsibility that maybe some churches in other cultures that are not so racially diverse or ethnically diverse may not have this same type of challenge. But in America, this melting pot culture that we have, we have a responsibility as the church of Christ to reflect that multiculturalism within our body as well. We, we, we have a responsibility for that. But oftentimes we don't meet that. I, I used that quote a couple weeks ago from Martin Luther King Jr. which he said, the most segregated hour in America is from the hours of 11 to about noon on Sunday morning. We still see that being the case. It's still the case to, to a lot of us. But here we see in just this list of names, what we pull from this is these names represent different cultures, different walks of life, different social, uh, socioeconomic statuses, all of these different things. There's men listed, there's women listed. It's, cel it's a celebration of a great diversity within the body of Christ. And see, when we say we need to embrace in discipleship as a church, what we're doing is we're not making carbon copies of one another. We're embracing that diversity that Christ offers us through him, 
through Jesus Christ. That he has created us with different gifts and he's created us with different abilities and skill sets to carry out the work of the Lord. Not everybody is the same. Listen, if God intended for everybody to be the same, do you think he would have embraced so much difference when it comes to our DNA and how he created us and how he created us all with different fingerprints and how in the greatest season of the year when it snows, there's no snowflake that has ever fallen that has been exactly the same? This is why winter is my favorite because it's so spiritual. (laughs) Right? God embraces and celebrates that diversity and he wants his church to do that as well. But still today... It's like we just segment and segregate off into different places based upon, our, based upon our preferences or based upon our race or based upon our cultural standings and all of those things. This is not the way God intended for it to be. See, there were some Jewish names. There were some Gentile names. Some were from Asia, the Middle East, and Europe. All of that represents what the throne room of heaven is going to look like. When people from every nation and tribe and tongue are going to stand around in white robes that have been provided by Jesus Christ, washed by his blood, and they sing, holy, holy, holy is the lamb that was slain to provide honor and glory to his name. The church, the worship service, when the church gathers, it should be a little taste of what heaven and what that throne room is going to look like, right? More than anything... Paul's very concerned with making us know that the early church consisted of Jews and Gentiles. And we saw just a few weeks ago that that was causing some problems in Rome too, wasn't it? Right? The Jewish people who were steeped in their tradition were mad at the Gentiles because the Gentiles seemed way too loose with everything. And the Gentiles were looking at the, at the, the Jewish believers and saying, man, you are just legalistic and you're almost going back into being a Pharisee in the way that you approach Christ. So let's not try to sugarcoat Rome into what it, something it wasn't. It was a challenge, but it was a challenge that they were learning to meet with the gospel. It was a challenge that they were learning to meet with the eyes and with the, 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 the spirit of God in it. There was also... Not just a racial diversity, but there was a diversity of class and socioeconomic status. So on top of that racial and ethnic diversity, these names attest to the difference in their class and their economic status. See, some of the people that are listed here in our text were people of considerable wealth and considerable position in Roman society or in Jewish society as well. Some of, some of those were of considerable means and others were slaves. See, Aristobulus in verse number 10 and Narcissus in verse number 11 are both mentioned as being the head of a household, which meant that they were like the head of an estate. They, there was, they were nobles that had land that had been given to them and passed down in their families. And so they were over these grand estates and had business ventures and political ventures in the Roman society as well. Some think that Aristobulus was the grandson of Herod the Great himself. In verse 23, Paul mentions a guy named Erastus who was actually the city treasurer there in Rome. So he was over all of the money there in Rome and he was like right up there with, and, and met with Caesar every day. Had that, it was that close to power and there was a believer that God had placed there. Phoebe was believed to be a woman of great means who helped many times to fund the work of the gospel that went all the way throughout Asia Minor and she was known to help believers get from Corinth to Rome, especially Paul who never really took, except unless the church wanted to give a love offering, never took a salary really. He made his money by making tents with Aquila and Priscilla. And so uh, it was believed that Phoebe was a woman who had great means and had great authority there and could help people out. On the other hand, you had people that weren't so wealthy, all attending the same church. Names like Rufus and Urbanus, they were common slave names. And since they were so common, nobles and wealthy class would never name their kids Rufus and Urbanus because they don't want their noble kids to get confused with just common everyday slaves. 
Narius and his sister in our text are noted in history to be servants in the court of Caesar. So when they came to church on Sunday, they were brothers and sisters in Christ. But when they went to work on Monday, they were just slaves in the house, maybe in the most powerful house in the world, but still were slaves there. Julia and Philologus and Olympia and Olympus are all uh, considered to be those, they were, it's believed that they were there as well in the house of Caesar because they're all mentioned together in that same portion of text. Here's the thing that we have to understand from this. While these people were from different worlds racially and different worlds economically and different worlds socially, they were brought together by one common bond, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So through the week, while maybe the society and culture would tell them they should never rub shoulders with one another, when they got together in the house of the Lord, they both fell on their knees alike. Noble and slave alike fell on their knees and they worshiped the same king of kings because they'd all been brought to royalty by him. That's the power of the gospel. That's the beauty of the gospel and that's the effect that the gospel has on its supporting cast, folks. When we come to know Christ, we are elevated from death to life. We are elevated from pauper to prince or princess. We are elevated from slave to royalty and we are elevated into the home of Jesus Christ. So when we gather on a Sunday morning and you look across and you begin to wonder, I wonder how much that person makes in our church. Or I wonder how much. And we look at the cars that people drive and we begin to think about that. Listen, there is no respect of persons with God. There's also no respect of purses with God either. God loves each one of us equally. And this reminds us it doesn't matter if you're a noble who has a great house or if you are a slave who doesn't have two cents to rub together. You are precious in the eyes of God. And we don't get the right and we don't get the privilege of starting to rank people and their worth when we look through the eyes of Jesus who saw all of us as worthy of giving his life for us. There was also a diversity of gender as well as we see here. And this is important to understand, especially coming from an ancient text because as we've progressed and we've seen equality begin to make leaps and bounds within our culture and still have ways to go, it wasn't always that way. See, all of these names mentioned in our text, we see eight or nine of them that we know for sure are women. And they're mentioned by name. We're unsure about Junia, who's listed a little bit, a little further down there, because Junia was kind of like a unisex kind of name back in those days, kind of like a Taylor or a Jamie or an Alex. You may know a Taylor, and it may be a guy or it may be a girl. It's a name that applies to either one, okay? But here's the deal. Paul uses the names and mentions women by name here in this passage, which was very countercultural to the writings of the day especially in writing letters and things, especially to the Jewish society and even Roman culture as well. Because in the Roman culture, men were, con men were considered to be the only value. And men who were landovers were considered to be the only ones who were valuable enough to have a position in society or have a say about anything. Women and children were considered to be the property of, of men. All right, women in Jewish society were considered to not have the ability to think intellectually or spiritually and had to be basically carried on the coattails of their husbands. But here's what Paul does. Paul takes eight or nine women and mentions them by name and not only mentions them by name, but what he thanks them for is significant as well. So he doesn't just thank them for bringing that, that awesome cake to the potluck. He thanks them for significant ministry that, has, that they have done and that they have done within the church, right? 
So of all these names that are mentioned, we see, some, we see some women that are listed. He leads off his conclusion with a woman that is named Phoebe. And he has noted that she's a servant in the church in Chintray, which is a small port city about seven miles south of the city of Corinth. So what she did there in the church of Chintray, she helped the missions out. Like I said, she was believed to have, be, a, be a woman of great means. And so she helped to fund missionary journeys. And she helped to get things to Rome that needed to get to the Roman church. And since she was in a port city, she helped to manage like offerings that would go back and forth to different places. What we do know about her, and that word servant that is mentioned says she is a servant of the church at Chintray. It's the same work, diakonos, which in the Bible we get our word servant, which means where we get our word for deacon. Now, we don't know for sure if that she held the office of deacon or deaconess within the early church. What we do know is that Paul notes her among the church in Corinth and among the people in Rome and says she is a great servant to the church of Jesus Christ. So what we do know, she's well known for her service and he taps her among all the other people that she could know or that he could know. He taps her to deliver the letter to the Roman church. So Paul, this great missionary, hands the letter that is going to be delivered to the Roman church, hands this book that we've been studying for a year, was delivered by Phoebe to the Romans. Now what would normally, this was standard practice, but what would normally happen is the messenger would go, and the way this would happen is the messenger would go with that, would go to the elders of the church in that city and say, here is a letter from the apostle Paul. It needs to be read to the church. It needs to be digested by the church. And so the church would receive that, and as they received that, the messenger would also say, here is what Paul wants you to know before you read it, and give instructions. Then that messenger would also stay in the church, go to those church meetings, and stand and answer any questions that they had about the book or about the letter. So here's Phoebe standing before the church, answering and speaking on behalf of Paul the very word of God. A lot of people take that to mean, oh, well, you know, there's, there's no different roles or there's no different roles of preaching and teaching and all that type of stuff. And I'll talk about that in just a second. But suffice it to say that Phoebe was someone of great trust and carried out a great, a great ministry that we are actually reaping the benefits for today. If Phoebe had not delivered that, and if no one had delivered that, we wouldn't be studying this today. So what we do know about that. Then there's another woman that is named Priscilla from verse number three. She's the husband of Aquila and she and her husband were business partner with Paul and they made tents along his journey as he traveled. So Aquila and Priscilla have landed in Rome now and are part of that church and Paul is basically saying, man, shout out to Aquila and Priscilla, man. I hope to see you when I get there. But he also says, they risked their necks for me. And what's interesting about Aquila and Priscilla According to literary standards and according to the cultural standards of the day, anytime a couple was mentioned, the husband was always mentioned first. But out of the six times that Aquila and Priscilla are mentioned in Scripture, Priscilla is mentioned first before Aquila, four times out of six. We don't know why, but it's just that way. I don't know. It wasn't because she just alphabetically falls first, but because culturally it would have been important to name uh, to name uh, Priscilla first and then Aquila, or Aquila first and then Priscilla, but every time we hear Priscilla and Aquila. The point is, is that these women are very influential in the early ministry of the church. They weren't just sent to make copies. They weren't just sent to watch the nursery, which are very important as well, but they were counted on and seen, as Paul says, as co-laborers. And this is significant because Paul gets a whole lot of criticism Today, especially in the deconstruction culture, 
of saying that Paul was a chauvinist and he wanted to, he wanted to repress women and repress their roles in the church that God intended. But I want to call those, call those people and challenge them to just go back and read Romans 16. Why would a man so anti-women and why would a male supremacist want to take the time to list these women like this and commend them for the work that they've done? See, the Word of God is not a, an oppressive book. The Word of God is a book of liberation. The Word of God is a book of celebration about the work of the gospel. You see other women that are named here. Mary and then two, tw two twin sisters, Tryphena and Tryphosa, which sounds like, like the stuff in a turkey that makes you sleepy on, on Thanksgiving, right? But those names actually mean delicate and dainty. But Paul describes them to be anything but when he says they are hard workers for the Lord. Julia and Persis are both feminine names as well. Paul mentions Rufus's mother, who he says was also like a mother to me, right? And this is so cool. When, we, when I was studying, I learned that I didn't realize this. But if you look over in Mark chapter 15 and verse 21, we're given a clue that Rufus's mom may have been the wife of Simon of Cyrene, who was the one that was chosen out of the crowd to carry the cross of Jesus up to Calvary. Because in Mark chapter 15, verse 21, it says Rufus, or Simon of Cyrene, the father of Rufus and Alexander, was chosen out of that crowd. Both Rufus and Alexander are mentioned by Paul in other letters as having been men who greatly helped him in his missionary journeys. Don't you see how the Bible just calls us all together for the purpose, right? Of the glory of God. See, the truth of the matter is, and there's, there's a, a big deal being debated about the role of women in church today. Should women be pastors? Should women be deacons? Should women be worship leaders? Should women be able to lead prayer in church? Should women be able to speak in church? All of these types of things. I'll say this, the Bible is really only clear about a couple of things. That the office of pastor is reserved for a man. God has his reasons for that. We culturally may question that, but it's clear in scripture. And he reserves, and he, that, he reserves that for a man. There are moments in the Bible where deaconesses were used. We, don't, we still have to make sure we understand about all that. But outside of that, holding a woman back from being able to pray in a group of people or holding women back from being able to share or, or if called upon by their pastor to read a scripture or something like that. Look, it, it, we can argue about the roles, but we should never argue about the significance. And no matter what the roles may be of women in church, just because a role may not be the same does not mean it's any less significant in the eyes of God. And what's interesting today is I find myself preaching to a room almost completely full of women today. So go girls, right? Right? And I say this, I don't want to say anything that would go against what God's word says. But when God's word doesn't say it, we don't need to imply that just based upon our cultural preferences either. The truth of the matter is, is no, how, no, no matter how great of an acting cast you put together, you're not going to have a great movie without a supporting cast and crew too. We don't know these women's names a whole lot. We don't know this. We don't know these men's names a whole lot. But without them, Paul says the church in Rome doesn't function. And it's through the church at Rome that we see so many missionaries going out later on and making a difference. And that's what leads to our last point is the gospel leads to great community. Actually, no, I, that's only my first point, right? I got three points. We ain't getting through this one, all right? How about that, all right? <sighs> the gospel leads to a great community. The gospel gives us a great diversity, but the gospel also leads to a great community. Look at verse number 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send you greetings. Now I will say Romans chapter 16, verse number 16 was my absolute favorite verse when I was a teenage boy in youth ministry. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Oh, 
there's a, new, there's a new girl here today. Well, let me greet them with a holy kiss, all right? That's, that's the improper application of God's word right there, okay? Right? What Paul was actually getting here is that the importance of Christian community, meaning that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to prefer one another. We are to prefer being in the company of one another, being in one another's presence. We are to prefer gathering together to worship. We are to prefer uh, them as friends, as almost family members, as spiritual family members. None of us are created to be an island. The church, one of the reasons the church is here one of the, church, the reasons that Christ instituted the church is so that brothers and sisters could find encouragement from one another. In Hebrews, it says, don't, don't forsake the assembling together as you see the day approaching. What day approaching? The days of hardship, right? Days of, tomorrow, many of you will go to work or go out in the marketplace and it's going to be a dog-eat-dog -dog world. When you come into the household of God, it doesn't need to be that way. You're going to go out in a world of skepticism, a world of loneliness, a world of, 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 of trying to one-up each other and competition and all that and stuff. And when we come into the house of God, it needs to be different. It needs to be the embassy of heaven where we got one superstar, and that's Jesus Christ. And the rest of us are supporting cast members. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. In ancient culture, a kiss on the cheek was a sign of friendship and it was a sign of greeting. And especially in that ancient culture, when everybody carried around a sword with them for defense... Going up to a person and greeting them with a kiss puts you at completely defenseless, in a completely defenseless position. It means I trust you implicitly. I'm opening myself and making myself vulnerable to you. This is the kind of love and this is the kind of attitude we're supposed to have to one another as brothers and sisters. And, 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 and imagine this, when you, when you look at the, the, the equality that the gospel gave to the church there, imagine a rich estate owner walking up to a homeless man who's coming to church and drawing him close enough to just kiss his cheek. This is the kind of picture that people got when they gathered with the brothers and sisters in Christ in Rome. Is a picture completely different than what they were used to seeing every day, Monday through Saturday. What's so striking about this text is that it was common practice to end the epistles, which is a few commendations of people, but Paul here, again, he lists a number of people that's three to five times longer than any other, any other epistle he wrote. And it's the personal nature of what he writes to. He's worked with Aquila and Priscilla. He's had personal interactions with all of these people. You know what that tells me about Paul? He wasn't just a preacher who, st who stayed behind a pulpit. He was out and he was among people and he was building relationships and he embraced the community of the brotherhood. Matter of fact, I think it's that community that he had built that kept him going when he was in prison because he was constantly in Philippians thanking God for the brethren. Folks, if you're on an island, with, if, if it's just you and Jesus and, and that's all you got, you're not living life biblically. We are to engage in community with one another. We need one another. Paul personally knows each and every person on this list. And he engaged in that. Social studies of men have revealed that as we get older, guys, we're the worst at this. That by the time that we're 50 years old, the only friend that we can probably say that we have is our wife. And our wives probably look at us and say, I ain't been your friend for like 10 years. <laughs> right? We begin to isolate. And you know what that does? 
Um, they have studied this at the National Psychological Journal of Medicine and said that loneliness and living in isolation can reduce your lifespan by 15 years. They said it is the equivalent, it does the equivalent damage to your neuro, neuro, neurological system as smoking 15 cigarettes a day for 50 years. So did you ever stop to consider this too, that the only actual need that Adam had in his perfected pre-sinful state, the only need that Adam had was a helpmeet? Did you notice that? The only need that he had before sin was a helpmeet. And guess what he probably said? Well, thanks for giving me, giving me the woman because she's the one who got me to sin in the first place. But, you know, before things went, went weird... God said, this is a holy desire. So your desire to have friends, your desire to have community is a holy desire. It's not one that's, that's, been, that's been messed up by sin or clouded by that. Church, we're not supposed to just be a place of worship. We're supposed to be a house of friends, a house of brothers and sisters. Paul praises two things about these people. He praises their devotion to God and their devotion to each other. And you may be sitting here saying, but I don't like the people I go to church with. They may not like you either. Right? <laughs> right? I'm just saying. We've got to work on finding community with one another. And then lastly, we'll finish because these last two points weren't really, weren't really that long. The gospel urges a doctrinal fidelity. The gospel urges doctrinal fidelity. We need one another. But as we gather together and as we engage in that community, we have to, be, we have to make sure that we are engaged in proper, faithful doctrine and proper, faithful following of the Lord. How many times have you, uh, rolling just a little bit further with this, this movie set thing, how many times have you heard about a, a TV show or a movie having to cancel production or replace a character because they, the, the, the character or the, the actor was just impossible to work with? We hear that happen sometimes, right? It messes up the chemistry of everything. In a TV series, you see that happen a lot. Maybe that character is like written off the show. They die a tragic death and they never come back or, or something like that. It happens, right? In verse, 10, verse 17 of our text, as Paul was talking about this supporting cast that had made the gospel in Rome so effective, he then gives a warning to this cast. Here's what he says. I urge you, brothers and sisters... To watch out for those who create divisions and obstacles contrary to the teaching that you learned. Avoid them because such people do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting with smooth talk and with flattering words. So after bragging on and loving on all these people in the first 16 verses, he says, look, you've got a great thing going and you've got a great supporting cast of the gospel work there in Rome. So make sure that you protect what you've got. And that is in all hands on deck. And that takes a commitment from everyone involved. Meaning, I'm going to make sure I keep my eyes on Jesus and be on the lookout all the time for where I may be drifting from the truth. And this can happen so many times in the body of Christ. In the church, Satan would love nothing more than to destroy it from the inside out. And listen, Satan doesn't have to destroy us by making us lost again. All he has to do is make us doubt our Savior once. That's all he has to do. Satan knows that he can't destroy the gospel. So what does he try to do? He tries to distract the church away from the gospel. Getting distracted on any number of things that we can get distracted on. And making the gospel a lesser and lesser thing. When church, the gospel must be the main thing. It must be the main thing. He says to be on the lookout, Paul does, for the people who create division and build up obstacles to the glory and the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And this was happening quite a bit in the early church and still is today in our churches today in many forms. And here's what he says. He says, stay away from them. Like run from them like the plague. Get them out. Their interests are not about God. And he says they're about their own selves. Here's the commendation in verse number nine that Paul gives to Rome. He says, but the report of your obedience has reached everyone. See, even though Paul had to talk to them about the fact that they were getting a little bit, you know, they were getting a little bit, you know, just tied up in all those secondary issues that we talked about a few weeks ago. He said, your obedience in all of these matters, everybody knows Rome to be a church that's about the gospel. And you're going to accept this correction that I give you and you're going to be better for it. He said, I commend you for that. And here's what he says again in verse number 19. He says, therefore I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The word innocent there is not just innocent about that you don't commit evil, but innocent in my mind. I don't even conceive it in my mind. He says to be on the lookout for those but then to continue to be obedient. So the gospel urges us to be faithful to gospel, realizing that we can't improve on it. We can't make it better. Or we can't make it more palatable. To embrace the gospel for what it is. It is the one unifying power on earth. And as we close out this morning. Yeah, there goes everybody closing their Bibles. All right, that's what I thought, yeah. As we close out this morning, we get to the closing credits of the message. Here's what we have to get and understand. The gospel of Jesus Christ, if we don't have the gospel, and if the gospel is not the main thing, why are we here? The gospel must be the main thing. Jesus must be the central focus. When we are pointing to Jesus, Jesus begins to make sure that he's pointing others to us so that we can tell others about Christ. We are the supporting cast of the gospel. This is the way God intended for it to be. Over in Matthew, this is what he says. I'm going to give you this message and here's what I want you to do with it. I want you to go and I want you to make disciples. I want you to tell everybody about me. I want you to tell everybody about how they can have eternal life like you have it. And in that eternal life, we're going to find that our racial struggles our gender struggles, all of these struggles that we have, they begin to fall in place in light of the gospel because we realize that all of us are only separated by a couple of things. We're separated by whether we are saved or whether we're lost. But all of us are equal in this. We're equal in the fact that God loves all of us. And we are called to love everyone as well. So my question for us today and the question that was placed on me today is am I embracing that thought? See, I find myself in uncomfortable situations with people who are different from me all the time. Maybe embracing that a little bit more and leaning into Jesus is the answer to that, right? And are we being faithful to the gospel? Are we being faithful to him? And are we open to community? a greater growing community as well. So as we bow our heads and as we close our eyes this morning, I just want to ask you this morning, do you know Christ as your Savior? Just about everybody in this room, I've known you for years and I've heard your testimony of salvation. But if you're watching with us this morning, I want to tell you something, that we serve a God who loves you immensely and infinitely. And we're a church that although we are not perfect, we are seeking to love like Christ loves. 
And if you've not trusted Christ, if you've not received that love of his mercy and grace, today's the day, man. Don't hold out anymore. Come to him. Put your faith and trust in him. Call on him and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because there's no hope outside of him. If you have questions about that or we can talk to you about that, email us. Today, if you're here and if you have questions or you're struggling in something, stick around and talk with me or talk with somebody today. We want to help one another in this journey. That's that community part, right? But this morning as we pray and as we go to this time of invitation, let's just reflect and ask ourselves, have I been embracing the power of the gospel to unite, the power of the gospel to, to call people into relationship and the power of the gospel to change. Have I been embracing that like I should? Heavenly Father, have your will and way in this invitation in our hearts in Jesus' name. As we stand this morning, if you need to come for any reason, would you please do so? Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section, or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.